to encourage you to be praying this morning that God will give you great insight, not only into his word, but into how it applies in your life and what you do with it. This morning, we're going to look at something that is very practical. So you need to be asking those types of questions. Danny, pray for us. Okay. Pray along with me, okay? Um, Father, as we come this morning, uh, just like the song that uh, we finished singing, uh, we're a child of God. You've created each one of us, and you call us your children, and also you call us your friend. And wow, um, that's something that uh, we need to always remember because sometimes discouragement creeps up on us, and uh, we forget that, God. So thank you that uh, this morning we can be here and get recalibrated in our thinking, knowing who you are, what you do for us, and uh, what your son has done for us. And so God, as uh, Phil said, uh, as we study this morning um, from your word, will you open up our hearts and our minds? Each one of us here needs something. There's things we need. There's things we need to start doing and quit doing. And you can lead us down that path through your spirit. So open up our hearts and minds to your word as we uh, look at it today. And you bring it to us through Phil's uh, preparation. So thank you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. There's a biblical term that doesn't get used a great deal anymore. And it's tragic. I wish it was. I wish people still held on to it. I wish they still talked like this. I wish they still used the word itself, but most people don't. That word, biblical word, is quicken, quicken. It means, very simply, to revive or make alive. That's the meaning of the biblical word, quicken. Boy, when you find something that does this for you, that revives you and makes you alive, you know exactly what the word means. You know exactly how to use it. But like I said, we don't use it much anymore. Even within scripture, we don't use it much anymore. You might be thinking, well, Phil, show us, show us where it's at. Well, I'm glad you want me to do that. So I will. Let's go to the book of Psalms together. Psalm 119. Verse 40. Now I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I want you to listen close for the word quicken. Psalm 119, verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Did you hear it? Did you hear the word quicken? No, you didn't was reading from the English Standard Version. Remember how I said that today we don't use it very often? We don't. The modern translations and even some that, that maybe aren't considered modern don't use the word, but they should. Now let me show you a couple other translations just to illustrate what we're talking about. This is the New American Standard Version. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. It gets a little bit closer to using the word quicken, but it isn't actually there. And we lose something in the translation minus the word. Here's the New International Version. How I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, 
preserve my life. That's the 2011 version of the New International Translation. You almost missed the entire meaning with how the editors chose to approach that. Oh, the word quicken changes the meaning. Look at it in the King James. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Terry, let's go back to the definition real quick. To revive or make alive. Now take that idea, the idea that quicken means to revive or make alive, and then let's apply it in the way the King James Version actually writes this. So let's go back to the King James. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Revive or make alive in me thy righteousness. Revive or make alive in me thy righteousness. See how the word quicken changes our understanding of the verse? It goes so much deeper than the word preserve. It goes so much deeper than simply using the word protect as some translations do. This word quicken says, I want you, God, to do something deep inside of me. I want you to do that with your laws, with your commands, with your precepts. Use those, the writer of the Psalms is saying, to quicken me, to revive me, to make something alive within me. See what it does for us? Now, I do like the way the modern translation, the message, would actually expound on this. Take a look at what Eugene Peterson says. God, teach me lessons for living so I can stay the course. Give me insight so I can do what you tell me. My whole life, one long, obedient response. Guide me down the road of your commandments. I love traveling this freeway. Give me an appetite for your words of wisdom and not for piling up loot. Divert my eyes from toys and trinkets. Invigorate me on the pilgrim way. Affirm your promises to me, promises made to all who fear you. Deflect the harsh words of my critics. But what you say is always so good. See how hungry I am for your counsel. Preserve my life through your righteous ways. Now, he does something with the word quicken. He really does. That was Peterson's way of expounding on the entire idea that is summarized in that word quicken. I love what he does with it. But most modern translations, they lose something by getting rid of that word. And we lose something by not knowing what it means. I hope you'll never forget it. I hope you'll hold on to the word quicken, that it is a term used, a word used biblically, where we are really saying, Lord, revive within me, make alive within me what needs to be quickened. Quicken my spirit. The reason I tell you all of that this morning is it happened for me this last week as I was studying for this message. My spirit, my soul, my heart, everything within me, my walk with Christ was quickened as I was reading a passage of Scripture. It's found in the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter. I want to share it with you today. As we do, I want to, I want to give you some understanding in the book of Deuteronomy so that maybe some of that same quickening will happen for you. Deuteronomy has been called the second law. Now, it's found in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. For the Jewish people, those five books are also known as the Torah, 
the Pentateuch or the Torah, a lot of Jewish people, Hebrew people, will memorize word for word the first five books of the Bible. Can you imagine as a kid being tasked with that? By the age of 17, 18 years old, a lot of Hebrew children, particularly boys even today, will have all five books memorized word for word. That's how important these are to them. And they should be important to us as well. But they stop there. That's the tragedy of Judaism. They stop there and they don't make their way into the New Testament because they don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. But that's a discussion for another time. When we come to Deuteronomy, you have to understand its application even within Judaism. It is the second law. The books of Exodus and Leviticus contain the first law. The first law was given to the Hebrew people that left Egypt during the Exodus. But because of their unfaithfulness, those people never went into the promised land. Deuteronomy is the second law. Moses gave it to the children of the children of Israel. Does that make sense? It's second generation. Just before Moses died and Joshua led the, the Hebrew people into the promised land, he gave them Deuteronomy. It's the second use of the Ten Commandments. That's found in this book as well as the book of Exodus. That's why it's in both books. It was given to the first generation. The first generation died, and so Moses gave the Ten Commandments to the second generation before they went into the promised land, and he gave them other instructions. So that's why Deuteronomy is known as the second law. Here's just a, a little detail that might quicken you a bit as you read from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, as I share this with you, let me do so with a big caveat. I do not know that this is true. It is found on the Hebrew College website, the Hebrew College found in Jerusalem. So that's where I got it, but it is not verifiable. So I do not know that this is really true. So when you quote it, make sure that you always put a caveat with that. But it's curious. Let me share this with you. There's a dramatic story in the Palestinian Talmud that teaches that when the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, every year on the night of the ninth of Av, the national day of mourning, each member of the Exodus generation dug a grave and slept in it. The following morning, some 15,000 individuals were found dead in their graves. According to tradition, this harrowing ritual was repeated annually for 40 years until the original 600,000 Israelites who left Egypt, those who doubted that they could attain the promised land, finally died off. Only on the day in which all of the people of the younger generation rose from their graves was the community of Israel finally worthy of inheriting the land. Triumph and tra tragedy were thus intertwined. Now, like I say, that is not verifiable. It does not come from the Bible. It comes from the Palestinian Talmud. So we cannot hold that forward as authoritative, but it does help us understand Deuteronomy. It's the second law given to the people that survived that, given to the people that made it some all 40 years, most born along the way. Their parents were gone. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones of the original Exodus that would cross the Jordan River and go into the Promised Land. Moses himself would not go with them, only Joshua and Caleb. But before Moses died, 
He gave them the book of Deuteronomy, the second law. Read it, understanding all of that. It can quicken your spirit. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10. It's not very long. We're going to read the whole chapter. And I'm going to ask you to stand out of respect for the word of God as we do this. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 1. Moses writes, At that time the Lord said to me, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of Achaia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are as the Lord commanded me. The people of Israel journeyed from Beroth ben Jekon to Moserah. Then Aaron died, and there he was buried. And his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gudgaga. Oh, that's the best I can do. And from Gudgoda, we'll try that, and Jothbeth, a land with brooks of water. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to stand before the Lord to minister to him and to bless him in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion of inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. Verse 12, listen close. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today, for you are good, or for your good, I'm sorry. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are to this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Go ahead and be seated. Now, in all of that, Moses is telling them about the commandments that God gave them, how they were placed in the, the Ark of the Covenant and how those commandments had traveled ahead of them through all of the wilderness. And, and really, Moses is boiling it down to this, and God's doing it through Moses, but Moses is giving them the command when he says, just do it. Just follow those commandments, 
and you will be safe. Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 come together to solidify all of that because Moses says to the children of Israel just before he goes up on the mountain to die in the presence of the Lord, if you will do what God says, God will bless you. If you do not do what God says, God will curse you. Chapter 27 and 28 lays it out very plainly, gives them the commandments to follow unto blessing and tells them what disobedience looks like unto the curses of God. He makes it very plain. But right here in the, the midst of Deuteronomy chapter 10, he boils it down so succinctly. Look again, verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Here it is up on the screen. Fear the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways, love him, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. In that one statement, God sums up Old Testament faith. God sums up what it means to love him in an Old Testament way. Fear the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, love him, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. God gave him the commandments, and he said, these will protect you. Walk in them. Just do it. Just do it. And when you move into the promised land, if you will, you will be blessed. If you don't, curses will follow. It was a simple faith. It was a simple faith. To read it and to hear things like that will quicken you if you allow it to. It will revive something in you and it will make alive something within you, something that desires the blessings of God. The problem we have in New Testament Christianity is we don't have those same commandments. We don't have those same things that govern us. What we have, what we have is much deeper. We have God the Father, the one that we can make the center of our worship, Thankfully, we have God the Father that we can make the center of our worship. And we have God the Son that makes it possible for us to direct our entire life unto God the Father. And we have the Holy Spirit living within us as believers to help us accomplish that. What we do not have in New Testament Christianity, though, is a list of commandments. We don't have them. We don't have them. And sometimes... It'd be nice if we did. Wouldn't it be nice if God just told us in the New Testament, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And now we know. Now we know. We're safe in our faith. Now we know. But we don't have that. What we have is so much better. We have this relationship with God made possible through His Son and powered by His Spirit that we can walk every day with Him relationally, getting to know Him better and better and better through the entire journey. Rather than just a relationship that is safe, we have a relationship that is wonderfully risky, that we will get to know God better and better all the time. But even in the New Testament, People were longing for the rules. They were longing for the boundaries and the borders so that they could know beyond the shadow of any doubt that they were just doing what they were supposed to and not doing what they shouldn't do. 
They wanted things that tight around them. Truth is, sometimes we do too. It would just be easier, be a little more comfortable for us, be safer. But in the New Testament, when the Jewish teachers of the law tried to pin Jesus down on it, he wouldn't allow them to. We've read this passage quite a bit. Let me show it to you again. It's in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Kind of sounds like Deuteronomy 12. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. That's, that's how Jesus would answer their question for boundaries and borders. That's how he would address the commandment issue. And from that point forward, throughout all of the Gospels in the New Testament, as much as we would long for a list of do's and don'ts, we can't really find them. What we can find is an encouragement unto deeper relationship. Know him better every day. Know him deeper every day. Love him deeper every day. And you will be safe in that relationship. Not only safe, you will be quickened by the relationship every day. The relationship will revive within you every morning when you wake up a desire to know the Lord better. It will make alive within you the desire to do what is pleasing to God. The relationship made possible through the Son does that for us. Yet still in our humanity, we long, we long for something that just is easier. And because we long for that, the Lord has a unique way of responding because He knows us. He knows us well. Even when we cannot find specific commandments in Scripture, what we can find are guardrails. Now, before we go too far into that, let me define for you what guardrails are. Now, I know you've driven on highways. You, you know what a guardrail is, but do you understand it biblically? Have you ever applied it biblically? Probably not. Most of us look for commandments. We look for fences rather than guardrails. God gives us guardrails rather than fences. There's a difference and a purpose that separates the two. Take a look at this definition. This is from Wikipedia. It is a conglomeration of definitions of guardrails. Here it is. Guardrail, guardrails, or protective guarding in general are a boundary feature and may be a means to prevent or deter access to dangerous or off-limit areas while allowing light and visibility in a greater way than a fence. God gives us something greater than a fence. He gives us something greater than commandments in the New Testament. He gives us guardrails that allow light and visibility in a greater way than a fence. By giving us guardrails, God allows us to see into the relationship and even beyond the immediate and the practical to see the effects of the relationship. Guardrails, they protect Guardrails save us from dangerous positions, but they do it by illuminating things for us differently 
than offense will. And there are a few places in the New Testament where God shows us guardrails. The book of 1 Thessalonians is one of them. Let me show this to you. It may surprise you to see how many are there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 11. If you're a bold, risky note taker in your Bible, I encourage you to write the word guardrails next to this passage because that's what this really is. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now there you have it. When I said it might surprise you, this may be the most surprising. There are 22 guardrails in that one passage. As I break it down, 22 guardrails. Now, a lot of times we think in terms of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are going to save us. Folks, the Ten Commandments are a fence. This is 22 guardrails. 22 guardrails. I like the way J. Vernon McGee says this. Take a look. Oh, nope. Go on to McGee's quote. The child of God is not under the Ten Commandments as way of life. He is way above it. He is to live on a much higher plane by these guardrails. They are lighting things up for us to know how we can know the Lord at a deeper level. Rather than just be safe inside the fence, these presuppose that we long to mature in the Lord. Parents, let's, let's talk about that just a little bit. If you have young children in your home, listen close to this. There is a time when your kids are very small that they live inside the fence. They have to. They're safe there with you. But the time comes when you have to open the gate and let them live outside the fence. As a parent, that's a terrifying time. When you open that gate and you trust your children to go outside the fence, it is scary. Or when you tear the fence down and, and they get to just live, it is scary. So I want to encourage you to do this as your children or your grandchildren get older and you recognize that the fence can no longer protect them, that they have matured to the place where you have to give them freedom outside the fence, give them guardrails. Give them guardrails. 
You illuminate things. You make things plain for them. Where you cannot keep them safe and secure inside the fence, inside your control, you can give them guardrails that help keep them on the right path. Give them guardrails. Fences, Ten Commandments, those are easy. Do this, don't do that. Guardrails are given to us to light things up, to illuminate things so that we can see safety by knowing where danger is and how to avoid it. Parents, give your kids guardrails. You do it by having a lot of conversations with them. You do it by talking about the hard things. You do it by not steering away from the difficult things. You talk about them. You talk about them all the time. You show them through God's word what the guardrails are. And if God's word doesn't lay it out specifically, you show them the will of God and the nature of God and how much that means to you. You show them the guardrails. Grandparents, you can do the same thing. You show your grandkids the guardrails because life on the other side of the fence is terrifying. Not just for us, even for them. Freedom can be scary. Guardrails help. Paul was doing that very thing for this new church, this place that he loved in Thessalonica. They were his children. So he gave them these guardrails. So glad he did. Did you catch the fact that he was talking to believers, by the way? Look again at this, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. Everything that he talks about in these 22 guardrails, they're for Christians. They're not for non-believers. The Bible's not for non-believers. The Bible's for believers. Relationship with God is for his children. So his word is for his children. Prior to coming to know Christ, there is only one fence. And it is, it is measured by one question. It is this one question that hems everyone outside of Christ in. That question, pretty simple. What will you do with my son who died for you? That's the, that's the only fence that God gives for non-believers. And by the way, it's very small. It is very small. There's, there's not much freedom within it. There's not much room to move around within it. It is a narrow fence it is a narrow yard. What will you do with my son who died for you? Interestingly enough, the person that would ask that question in the most powerful and pointed of ways was a man that had to wrestle with it himself. His name's Pilate. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 22, we find Pilate, the man who held Jesus' fate of crucifixion in his hand, the man who would send him to the cross, had to ask this question. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, the Bible tells us. When Pilate asked that question, he showed us the wrestling match he was in. By the way, tradition and history would tell us he didn't answer it the right way. He sent Jesus to the cross, caved to peer pressure, even as he was wrestling with this question, here, here it is again, just minus the crucifixion side of it. Terry, let's put that question back up one more time. 
minus the, the crucifixion, the who died for you part of it, he was saying, what, what am I going to do with Jesus who's called the Christ? Everybody has to ask that question. Everyone is confronted with that question. When we answer it the right way, the guardrails kick in. Once we answer it the right way, God in his knowledge of us gives us the blessing of the guardrails and the opportunity to live outside the fence in the freedom of knowing him more and more. So we find these. 1 Thessalonians 5, 22 of them. 22. You might think, preacher, I didn't hear 22. I didn't, I didn't catch that. I don't see how they break down. Well, I want us to walk through them one more time. We're going to do this in what I refer to as 22 guardrails in 60 seconds. 22 guardrails in 60 seconds. I want to credit Jeff David for being the voiceover that you hear in this. He's the one who's about to read them for you. And I don't really even want you to look in your Bible right now because I would encourage you to later go back and number them in your Bible so that you can see them. Look up on the screen and listen as Jeff reads 22 guardrails in 60 seconds for us. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Respect those that teach. Esteem them highly. Be at peace among yourselves. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays evil for evil. Always seek to do good. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Pray for those in ministry. Read this letter to everyone. There it is. 22 guardrails in 60 seconds. See how they aren't rules and commandments? At no point are they put together like a, a list of commandments. Rather, they are put together as guardrails, each one having a specific purpose. In order to illustrate that, I would break all 22 of them down into six distinct categories. Looks like this. Love the brothers. Verse 11, love the bride, verses 12 through 15. Love the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, verses 16 through 22 and 18 and 19. With God's help, love who you become in Him, verses 23 and 24. Love others enough to pray for them, verse 25. And love the Word of God, verse 27. Guardrails, guardrails, each one with a purpose. And as you go through those individually, we don't have enough time to do that today. We'd be here 22 weeks if we took every one of those and expounded on them. But as you go through them and you look at how to apply them, apply them within these categories and they'll become a lot more tangible for you, a lot more usable for you. Each one having the ability to quicken your spirit to revive something within you, to make alive something deep within you. Think about just a few of them, things like this. Rejoice always quickens your spirit. 
no matter what you're facing, rejoice always. It quickens your spirit, makes something alive within you, even in the face of turmoil. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Well, if that doesn't quicken your spirit, maybe you need to figure out who Jesus is. Pray continually. I want to talk to God all the time, and He wants me to. That is an invitation from the Lord to talk to Him about everything. Some translations of the Bible say, pray without ceasing. Boy, that'll revive your prayer life. Pray without ceasing. Let it quicken your spirit. And then at the end of this, we have this command to love the Word of God. Make sure you read this letter to everyone, Paul says. Make sure they get it in their hands. Love the Word of God because of what it teaches. Love the Word of God because of how it will help you grow. Beautiful picture. That's why these are guardrails. They illuminate everything for us. See them as commands, and you will never get the full depth of everything that Paul was teaching. See them as guardrails, and they'll accomplish for you what they were meant to do. They are guardrails given to keep you out of danger by allowing you to see clearly. These six categories, they'll help you with it. The discerning mind might be looking up there thinking, Phil, you left a verse out. And that is true. I left out verse 26 because it kind of, uh, kind of fits in its own category. Here it is for you. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. If ever there was a passage of Scripture that I would like to remove, just one verse of Scripture that we could cut out of the Bible, it would be that one. Oh boy, it would be that one. <laughs> and a, a lot of different folks have, have wrestled with that verse. What does that mean? I can tell you that I went to Bible college and we didn't wrestle with it. We celebrated that verse when we started dating and found the, the person we wanted to be with. So when Tina and I started dating in Bible college, it was like, well, you know what, baby, the Bible says to greet you with a holy kiss. I think I better do that. And so I, I could distort the passage if I wanted to. Anybody can. But we can also look at it and see what it is. It's a guardrail given to us to help protect the brotherhood. Because what Paul is teaching here is that we are to greet one another with a specific type of greeting, a holy greeting. That's reserved. That is reserved for those that we share the faith with, those that we are close to, those that, that have a relationship with us. You greet them with a holy greeting. Now, today in our culture and society, it doesn't have to be a kiss. That was just something culturally that worked. It might be a handshake, fist bump, whatever it might be. It might even be the tone in your voice. But it may be nothing more than respect because of what is shared between two people. And if that's the case, then let it be what it is. But make sure it is holy. Now, we talked about this greeting a few weeks ago, if you were here with us, but there are other ways to apply it. Let me illustrate that for you. Jay Denning and I have been in Bible study together for 12 years, 13 years, 14 years, something like that. We have been studying the Word of God with one another in Salt Group as well as in church, and a friendship has grown out of our common love for the Word of God. So when my phone rings and Jay has my cell phone number as I have his, when my phone rings and I see that it's Jay, if I can answer the phone, I'm answering the phone. 
Because Jay is my friend, and I want to do whatever I can to answer that phone. And in that greeting, I want to make sure that I am communicating something that says to him, you have this standing in my life. It's a holy greeting. That's what Paul's talking about. And we can apply it in a lot of different ways. Ken Miller and I have been hunting together for, I don't even know how many years now, we've been hunting together. And Ken and I have been in Bible study together for about that same length of time, 10, 12, 13 years together. When my phone rings and it's Ken, there's a greeting there. And it is a greeting that is bound together in the fact that we are together in Christ. It's a holy greeting, sometimes full of great abuse, but it is a holy greeting. That's the way that works. It communicates relationship. You can apply that in all kinds of different ways. You can apply that in all kinds of different relationships. But the one thing that Paul is calling out is you make sure that there is a difference between the way you greet the brothers and the way you greet those outside of Christ because there's encouragement in it. Let the relationship encourage and build up. In Romans chapter 16, he shows us exactly what that looks like. We'll close with this if the worship team wants to make your way up here. Look at Romans chapter 16 and see how important this is for Paul. Starting in verse 1, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now listen to this. We're getting into a run of greetings. Greet Prisca and Aquila, that's Aquila and Priscilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apanidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Lunia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved. And he goes on and on and on through all of this until you get to verse 16, where he says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. That command doesn't just show up in 1 Thessalonians. It's in the book of Romans. It's in three other places in Paul's writing and one other place in the Apostle Peter's writing. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And what they're really teaching is you make sure you greet the brothers differently. You make sure that they have a different standing in your life and encourage each other with that standing. Encourage one another within the relationship because it matters because it matters. And folks, that's one of the greatest guardrails there is. Paul fell in love with this church in Thessalonica, and he'd only been there three weeks. Just three weeks. He was, he was in Corinth when he wrote back to them. But in the writing, he's saying, greet one another. You are so special to me. Greet one another. My dad, when I'm talking with him, he'll say, tell the kids I said hello. It's the same thing. Tina's mom, when she'll call from Kansas, will say, tell everyone I said hello. It's the same thing. And shame on us if we don't pass that on. That's a greeting just like Paul would send and one that he would encourage us to extend to others. You know, in our worship service, earlier we asked you to greet one another. 
That's what we're talking about. You greet each other with a holy greeting. One that just says, I'm glad you're here and I care about you. And so does God. Maybe at times that needs to be the greeting that we offer. I'm glad you're here. And so is God. And let's just worship together. This morning we're going to offer an invitation just like we always do. It's an invitation for you to maybe step on the other side of the guardrail and get to know Jesus by answering the question the right way that you might be in fellowship with other believers and the greeting will resonate deeply within you when you get there. But it all begins with answering the question, what are you going to do with Jesus who died for you? Once you've answered it, God's got guardrails to keep you on the path. He'll illuminate everything for you. Let that be the case. Why don't you stand? We'll pray together and then we're going to sing. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us enough to know that what we need is guardrails. More than commandments, we need guardrails. Father, let us live within them. Safely, certainly but boldly by all means, that we might know you deeper and better and love you at a greater level than we ever have. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.